Well, good morning, church family, and if this is uh, your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, uh, we're just glad you're here. Windsor Road is a life-changing community passionately pursuing Christ. That's, uh, that's what we're about here, and Jesus is the most important person in this place. And so um, we have been studying through um, Mark's gospel, and this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 14. I'm going to be reading verses 53 to 72, so if you have a, your Bible with you, um, please turn there to the New Testament book of Mark, Matthew, Mark, the second book in the New Testament, and uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to just take the uh, church Bible that's in the pouch in front of you, and uh, you'll find Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 72 on page 721, page 721. You can follow along with me uh, as I read Mark 14, 53 to 72. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another not made by man. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man that you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, 
you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's word. Has anyone ever betrayed you? Anyone ever turned against you? Maybe it was at work, something went south, and someone had to be blamed, and someone blamed you, and they just threw you under the bus. Anybody ever done that to you? Or maybe it was a friend, and you trusted that friend with confidential information about yourself, and that friend broke trust. Or maybe someone cheated on you. Maybe someone did that treachery. Maybe it was something as simple as someone promising you that they were going to be your friend, that they were going to stand by you, but when the time came for you to depend upon them, they just bailed out, left you all by yourself. Anybody ever done that to you? The psalmist talks about this kind of betrayal and summarizes our verses in Psalm 41, verse 9. The psalmist wrote, Even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, the one who shared my food. And if you know anything about Middle Eastern culture, you know that table fellowship is more than just fuel for the stomach. Table fellowship is an act of loyalty, Table fellowship says, I am with you and we are connected. Even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, the one who shared my food, has turned against me. Psalm 41.9. That verse pretty much summarizes our verses in Mark's gospel, wouldn't you say? Anybody here ever identify with that? Anybody ever been betrayed? Well, I have to ask this question. Have you ever betrayed anyone? Have you ever thrown anybody under the bus? Have you ever broken trust? Have you ever cheated on someone? Have you ever failed another person? Our verses today deal with failure. Peter's failure. The apostle Peter's failure. Peter who was so close to Jesus. Peter who we could really honestly say was Jesus' best friend. I mean, he had heard Jesus teach. He had witnessed the miracles that Christ had performed. He was there at that amazing transfiguration earlier in Mark's gospel. And yet, in a life-threatening situation, in a crisis, Peter failed Jesus. Now, how does that happen? How does that happen? How how does the same person who said in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, you are the Christ, how does that very same person later say in Mark 14, 71, I don't know the man you're talking about. Peter denies Jesus without even mentioning his name. You won't even see, you won't even hear Peter mention the name of Jesus in his denials. He just disowns him. I don't even know who you're talking about. How does that happen? And how does this happen to the apostle Peter? And if it could happen to the apostle Peter, could it happen to me? Could it? 
Well, as we think about these verses this morning in Mark's gospel, I want to just answer two questions. Um, And the first question is this. I want us to just review this, and I want to know why this happened. How could Peter have failed Christ? Why did he fail so miserably? That's question number one. We're going to talk about that. And then I want to answer the question, how does Jesus help us when we fail? What does he do? How does he help? Why did Peter fail? And how does Jesus help? And and let me just stop right here for just a minute because um, I'm kind of sensing the mood in the room, which is, wow, this is heavy. You're right. You're right. It's heavy. You you may have come here today and thinking, I wanted to be uplifted. I wanted us to be cheerful. I want us to be happy. We're going to do that on Easter. Okay? All right? I promise. Okay? You may be thinking, I, I'm, I'm not, why do we have to talk about this? Why do we, why, why do we, let's talk about success. Why do we have to talk about failure? You know why? Because people fail. That's why. That's why. And so, so we can learn from Peter about why he failed, and maybe there are some lessons for us that we can connect with, and then, then we're going to see how God, what God does to us in the midst of our failure, all right? And that's why I want us to focus on those two questions today. So let's get to question number one. Why did Peter fail? Hmm. Well, actually, his failure started much earlier than Mark chapter 14 Verses 53 and 54, where we began reading, Peter's failure actually begins in verses 27 to 31. It's just on the other page of Mark 14. Look back at verses 27 to 31. So the Passover supper has taken place. They've had this um, lengthy, large meal. And Jesus and the, the 12, they sing a hymn. Then they go to the Mount of Olives, and it's there that Jesus says to the 12, you're all going to fall away, verse 27. And he quotes an Old Testament passage of Scripture in Zechariah 13, which says, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But then he encourages them, after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. But it seems that they just kind of didn't pay attention to that. Peter just inserts himself right away and he says oh no 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 I'm not going to deny you nobody's nobody's going to fall away that's not going to happen look at verse 29 even if all fall away I'm not going to fall away and Jesus looks Peter right in the eyes and he loves him tells him the hard truth verse 30 I tell you the truth Peter today yes tonight tonight before the rooster crows twice, you yourself, you yourself will disown me three times. And Peter just keeps pushing back. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. No way. Verse 31, but Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. And right here is where we see the start of Peter's failure. Right here is where we see what led to Peter's failure. Peter doesn't think he's capable of doing what Jesus says he's going to do. Peter doesn't see himself as someone who could fold under pressure. 
Peter thinks he knows himself better than Jesus knows him. Peter thinks Jesus is wrong. Which means Peter doesn't see himself as Jesus sees him and therefore he doesn't see the situation for what it is and therefore Peter overestimates his abilities under stress which leads him to underestimate everybody else which causes him to compare himself with the other disciples. Oh, they might fall away. They might betray you. They might throw you under the bus. They might disavow you, but I won't because I'm special. I'm different. I'm not like them. I can do it. I can do it. And there's a word for this, and it's the word Performancism. Performancism. New word for the day. Performancism. Performancism says I'm capable of performing in such a way as to make myself acceptable to God, even though you may not, which makes me better than you, above you, superior to you. Performancism. Performancism is all about what I need to do for God in order to get something from God. Performancism. Performancism says, if I obey, I will belong. Performancism says that if I read my Bible and pray my prayers and give my offerings and do good deeds, then God will have to love me. He will have to. Performancism says that God's love is regulated by a heavenly cosmic valve that angels open whenever we do something good. Performancism. Performancism has a slogan, and the slogan is, do more, try harder. Performancism. Performancism performancism says that in some way, heaven is somehow connected to being in church once a week. Call it fire insurance. And thus, performancism asserts that church, what's going on right here, right now? Church is about a good person telling other good people how to be better people. Performancism. And Peter was full of it. And because he was so confident of his performancism, it caused him to overrate himself, underrate the others, and vastly underestimate the gravity of his situation. And so, after this big meal with wine, it's late, there in Gethsemane, Jesus is there in the garden and he's praying while Peter and the other disciples are sawing logs. And when armed guards came for Jesus, they were totally caught off guard and and their world was rocked and they panicked. And at first they're snoring, then they're swinging swords, and then they're fleeing for their lives. It's absolute chaos. And here in verse 47 we learn, uh, it says that, that uh, there was this anonymous person who was standing there who hacked off one of, the, uh, one of those who came for Jesus. Who was that? Well, John's gospel, John was there. John's an eyewitness. John says, well, that was Peter. Peter was the one who drew his sword and hacked off that servant's ear. And the guy's name was Malchus, by the way. John 18. And then we 
Then we read these really odd verses in verses 51 and 52 that tell us of the Bible's only streaker. Yeah. I'm not making this up. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, who in the world was that? Who was that? Well, I've got four degrees. Uh, I looked in the original languages. I've got the best commentaries on this, and I can definitively tell you, I don't know. Don't know. We don't know who he was. Uh, Some have suggested that this is like actually Mark himself, who kind of in an Alfred Hitchcock moment writes himself into the Gospels, and maybe that's possible. Others have thought that maybe it's Lazarus. Remember when Jesus raised him from the dead? And he was a wanted man too, we learn. So, well, I don't know. Well, why is it here? Well, This kind of detail, it's a detail. It's a detail that can only come from someone who was there. It's just another example of eyewitness testimony, you see. This isn't fiction. Someone saw this. Someone wrote this down. It's here. It's on record for us. The subtle question is, what would I have done? How would I have responded? And then we come to these verses that we read earlier in Caiaphas's, the high priest, his courtyard, and Peter is there. And Peter's there. He failed in the garden, but he's still committed to his performancism, right? And the motto is, well, just... Do more, try harder. So he's going to just do more and try harder. And he ends up walking into a vulnerable situation all by himself. And before he knows it, he's behind enemy lines. And he is way over his head. And he's not prepared. And that's when this little girl, this is a little girl, and Peter's a man's man, but this little servant girl comes up to him and says, hey, mister, I, you were with Jesus. You were with him. Verse 68, he denies it. And then Peter goes out to the gateway of the courtyard. He leaves the fire, goes out to the gateway, but there's that little girl. She doesn't have any boundaries. She doesn't know that she's not supposed to follow him. So she just kind of goes right up to him. And now there's a bunch of bystanders there, right? Hey, I saw that man with Jesus. Verse 69. He denied it. And then the bystanders all pitch in. This snowball is getting bigger and bigger. Yes, yes, you were with him. You were with him. You're a Galilean. I can tell by the way you talk. This is the way Galileans talk. He was spotted. And that's when Peter implodes. And a string of profanity just flies out of his mouth. (laughs) I don't know this man. He doesn't even mention the name of Jesus, does he? And before Peter can inhale to take another breath, he hears something that just cuts him in half. Verse 72. Immediately, the rooster crowed. 
the second time. Three times, three times, Jesus told Peter he was going to the cross, and three times he told Peter to watch and pray, and three times Peter, his best friend, denied him. Why do we fail? Why do we fail? Could it have anything to do with this word performancism? Could it? You know, we think we're different. We think we're stronger than we really are. We think we know ourselves better than Jesus knows us. We think that we can walk into a compromising situation, fully convinced that we can handle it all by ourselves, and very quickly we discover that we are in over our heads. And at the end of the day, our performancism leaves us with a shattered picture of a false self-image. No wonder Peter wept. Verse 72, he broke down and wept. A teacher by the name of Richard Bauckham wrote, I wonder what Peter was weeping about. Was it over the death of who he thought he was? Peter the strong? Peter the true? Peter the man in charge, Peter in control, Peter on top of things, Peter the faithful friend, Peter the afraid of nobody, Peter the superior to his weak brothers, these pseudo self-images which were all so dear to Peter, images that had come to define him, images that he had grown to depend on to give him meaning in life, images that made him feel different and admirable, and in one moment of clarity, he saw that they were not the real Peter. The real Peter was the one who to protect himself would deny with curses the friend he had sworn to stand by to the death. He wept bitterly over the death of a false self. And then Bacham says this. He says, it was a terrible, it was a terrible but necessary loss. Luke's gospel gives another perspective of this. Luke's gospel says that in, uh, in chapter 22, verse 61, the moment the rooster crowed, Jesus and Peter, they locked eyes. I'm not sure what the layout was, Peter being downstairs, Jesus being upstairs, but somehow they locked eyes at this third denial, at this crowing of the rooster. Luke 22:61 61 says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I wonder what kind of a look that was. Hmm. Here's what I don't think it was. I don't believe that it was a you idiot look. I really don't. I don't, and here's why. Because earlier, Jesus said, before this whole snowball went downhill, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, 
but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And that's what I think that look was. It was a look that says, I have prayed for you. Now, this is the God you worship. This is the God you were singing to. You worship a God who, while he is being spit on and while he is being mocked and while he is being beaten, you worship the kind of God that in the midst of that, if he locks eyes with you in your failure, he says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you even as you are feeling the effects of your failure. I'm praying for you that your strength may not fail. That's who you worship. And that leads me to the second question that I want us to answer. We fail because of our performancism. And what does Christ do in the midst of our failure? How does he help? Scripture says very clearly in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, when we are faithless, if we are faithless, and we are, he remains faithful. He helps us in our failure by his faithfulness. Even in my failure, Christ is in my corner. That's what this says. Even in my failure, Christ is in my corner. And that's what we see. In every part of these verses, wherever we see Peter failing, Peter's failure is countered by Christ's faithfulness because when we are faithless, he is faithful. Even in my failure, Christ is in my corner. So for instance, in the garden, when Peter is sleeping, Jesus is faithfully praying. Jesus is seeking his Father's will. In the moment of deepest anguish, Jesus prays in Mark 14, verses 35 and 36. He he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And then he says, Abba, Father, a term of endearment. Father, dear Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. And, and again, this is, this is just another example of why I believe this happened in history because if the early Christians were trying to concoct a story about their founder, they never, ever would have, this is not how you would have written fiction in the first century. Uh, you would have heard something like how Socrates lifted up his cup of hemlock and, and said something bravely and took it. You would never have heard of someone saying my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death and yet that's exactly what we hear from the heart of Christ in the garden we see Jesus heart and we see the father's will and we see that Jesus commitment to his father's will is more important than Jesus commitment to his own heart and in fact you could say that Jesus went to the cross in Gethsemane before he went to the cross at Calvary. You can say that. Jesus' heart and soul were crucified long before the nails pierced his flesh. And so when they came for him, he was ready. You hear this anguish and distress and horror and trouble in the Garden of Gethsemane. But when he stands before Caiaphas and the high priest, there's none of that. Jesus is resolute. He is committed to his Father's will. And why? Because if we are faithless, he is faithful. 
He cannot deny himself. And speaking of Caiaphas, the high priest, he stands before this evil high priest who can't even orchestrate a mockery of justice with any sense of precision. He pulls in these false witnesses. Surely he would have prepped them on what to say ahead of time, falsely against Christ, and they can't even do that. Verse 56, many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Verse 59, yet even in their testimony, they did not agree. They can't even get it right. And so finally, Caiaphas has to speak up himself. And he presses Jesus with the full authority of his office when he asks him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And literally, literally, that's a declarative sentence with a question mark. You, you, the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And with no anguish whatsoever, Jesus says, I am. And then he quotes Daniel chapter 7 in which he says to Caiaphas, Caiaphas, you may be standing in judgment on me right now, but I can assure you there will come a day when I will stand in judgment over you. Verse 62, Jesus says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And right then, they condemn him to death. And they brutalize him right there, spit on him, blindfold him, mock him, and the guards took him and beat him. And in doing so, his enemies unwittingly fulfill the Father's will. Ironically, When Jesus feels most distant from his father, he is in fact fulfilling his father's will. And why? Because he's faithful, that's why. When we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. Don't you see, in every place where Peter fails, Jesus proves faithful. Peter sleeps, Jesus prays. Peter waits by the fire outside while Jesus is under fire inside. Peter crumbles at the simple question from a little servant girl while Christ boldly confesses under duress before the high priest. In each place, Jesus was undoing Peter's failure while Peter was failing right then. And not just for Peter. For you and me, for us. Because later, this same Peter would write in 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus says, I want to cure you of this silly religious disease called performanceism. I don't want you to trust your performance. I want you to trust my performance, and that requires faith. Faith that, first of all, a real person named Jesus of Nazareth walked and talked this earth, and that eyewitnesses affirmed Jesus' self-claim to be God in the flesh. He looked 
so much like man, he acted so much like God, and that he, that he came from heaven, that this world is not all there is, that there's really another world, and that God in Jesus entered and invaded our world for the sole purpose through his death and burial and resurrection would bring us back to him. See, don't you see, Christianity and Christian growth is not about trying to behave better or do more or try harder. That's not good news. The message is not behave better. The message is believe better. The determining factor of your relationship with God is not your performance. It's not your success. It's not your failure. It's not your past. It's not your present. It's Christ's performance. It's his past. It's his present. And my biggest challenge as as your brother in Christ, as a fellow believer, as your pastor, my biggest challenge is the hard work of thinking of my performance less and believing more deeply what Christ has done in his performance for me. Because the simple fact is this, church family, if God didn't forgive sin, heaven would be empty. And I just, I, I, I want to be, uh, be your brother here. And I want to be gentle when I say this. But right about at this time, someone might be thinking, well, you know, Randy, I know that God forgives me. I know that. I just can't forgive myself. I just can't forgive myself. And I just want to, as lovingly and as gently as I can, say, that's nonsense. That's just nonsense. That's just silly. What makes you think your opinion of yourself is more important than God's opinion of you? What? Someone get that phone. (laughs) If your bank called you tomorrow, well, let's make it about me. If my bank called me tomorrow and said, Randy, we have good news for you. Your mortgage has been paid for. Your mortgage has been paid for. You, you, don't, you don't owe any more payments. Here's the paperwork. Here's the lien. Here it is. It's all legal. It's just, whoa, whoa. You say, why couldn't that be about me? Because I'm the one with the microphone. That's why. <laughs> what if I said, well, I know the bank has forgiven my mortgage, but I just don't, I don't know. I just don't feel, I'm going to keep making payments to the bank. Right? Who would do that? You would not do that. You wouldn't. I wouldn't. You'd be so giddy with gratitude. You'd find yourself full of love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You'd find yourself, you'd find yourself giddy with generosity and sharing. You'd throw a party. Can I tell you that the opinion of your heavenly father trumps the bank? 
And he says, finished, done, paid for. So you don't have a behavior issue, you have a belief issue. Do you trust your heavenly father and what he's done by sending his son for you or not? Don't you see, the gospel not only frees you from what others think about you, the gospel frees you from what you think about yourself. What I think about myself doesn't matter anymore. It's only what God thinks about me. And our greatest need, my greatest need, is to look at Christ more than I look at myself because the gospel is not about my work for Christ. It's all about his work for me. Because when I'm faithless, he's faithful. Several weeks ago, Sarah and I were um, at a conference. It was really good. It was just a good conference to be at together. And one of the speakers was a um, retired pastor. His name is Steve Brown. Steve Brown talks about um, when his daughter was growing up, she was in a class, a very difficult English literature class. And uh, she just wanted to get out of that class because she just didn't think she could make it. And she asked with tears, she asked her father, she said, Steve, would you, Father, would you please come with me? I want to talk to the teacher. And so they went to the teacher, and the minute they got in front of the teacher, his daughter just started weeping. And because she... Steve said, well, my daughter is wanting out of the class. She just wants to get into a regular English class. And the teacher looked at Steve Brown and said, Can I, may I have a word with your daughter? And Steve said, sure. And the teacher looked at the daughter and said, Robin, what if I gave you an A no matter what you did in the class? What if I gave you an A no matter what you did in the class? Steve Brown says, now my daughter may be insecure, but she's not stupid. (laughs) She said, well, I'll take your class then. Teacher said, okay, you have an A. You have an A. Now I want to talk to your dad. And then she proceeded to tell Steve Brown why she did what she did. She was taking away the threat of a bad grade so that his daughter could learn English literature. And guess what happened? She ended up making A's anyway, you see. Now, I am not telling you that illustration because I think that's how our Education needs to happen today. I would, like my, I would like my heart doctor to make A's. I would like my pilot to actually know how to land the plane. I'd, I would really like that. But I am telling you, that's how God deals with us. It is. We've just seen it right here. Because of Christ's finished work, Christians already have an A. And so the threat of failure, judgment, condemnation, it's all been removed. It has. Nothing we do will make our grade better and nothing we do will make our grade worse. By his life and death and resurrection, Christ, our substitute, secured for us everything. He secured the A. And so all the pardon, all the approval, all the righteousness, all the rescue, all the purpose, all the freedom, all the meaning, 
all the cleansing, all the significance, and all the worth, and all the affection that we so desperately crave and need are already ours in Christ. And so we don't need to add anything to that. And the power that makes you a Christian is the same power that keeps you a Christian, which is the unconditional, unqualified, undeserved, unrestrained grace of God in the completed work of Christ. And that's why I can do this job today. That's the only reason I can do this job today. Even in my failure, Christ is in my corner because, because when I'm faithless, he's faithful. So the question is this. What are you going to do once you realize you don't have to do anything? What are you going to do? Well, what will your life look like under the, under the banner of it is finished? What? Will the former denier later says in 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. If we are faithless, he is faithful. Even in my failure, Christ is in my corner. That's the word for today, church. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then Katie is going to sing, and then we're going to share some communion, um, which is a reminder that even in our failure, Christ is in our corner. Oh, Lord, when I am weary and exhausted, you're not. And when I am confused and discouraged, you're not. And when I am fickle and unfaithful, you're not. And when I'm doubtful and disheartened, you're not. And when I'm short-sighted and fearful, you're not. When I'm tired and I'm about to quit, you're not. And when I'm lacking in hope and love, you're not. And when I'm shocked and surprised, you're not. And when I'm angrily withholding grace, you're not. And when I'm unfaithful to what I've promised, you're not. And when I'm selfish and disloyal, you're not. Oh, Lord, of faithfulness and grace, I am so thankful that in those moments when I am losing my way, you're not. In Jesus' name, amen.